a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, I'm delving deeper into one of the most desirable markets in the world for Aussie business, China. With such a large population and a booming economy to boot, China can present a goldmine of opportunities for business owners. But I know from experience that the landscape can be tricky to navigate. So, across these next five episodes, I'll speak to a business owner who has succeeded in China and an expert to find out the biggest challenges Aussies face when trying to make it in the so-called Middle Kingdom and, most importantly, how to overcome them. People often ask me where I got the title, The Airport Economist. Well, it came from a book that I wrote literally in airport lounges around the world. I was travelling so much for Austrade that I found myself with a lot of spare time, so I wrote a chapter on each country I visited in the airport lounge, and eventually it became the book, The Airport Economist. But after the book was published, I got a very strange call from the United States from a fella claiming he was the airport lawyer and he claimed I'd stolen his IP, his intellectual property. And so I told him that the airport cleaner had actually got there first, and he could sue both of us as the airport economist and the airport lawyer. And I never really heard from him again. In fact, it reminded me of when the Warner Brothers tried to sue the Marx Brothers for the film title A Night in Casablanca. When Groucho heard about the lawsuit, he said, well... I didn't know the Warner Brothers owned the whole city of Casablanca. I thought the people of Morocco did. Anyway, we were the Marx Brothers before they were Warner Brothers, so I'll sue them for using brothers. Then I'll go after all the brothers, the Brothers Grimm, so there. But whatever the protests of Groucho, intellectual property really does matter. And just because you own the copyright to your company brand at home doesn't mean you own it when you go into another business jurisdiction. Like China, for instance. It actually can be quite complicated. So now let's find out how to protect your intellectual property in China. Joining me first is Malcolm McKechnie from Bicycle Technology Business, NOG. After manufacturing successfully in China, he knows better than most the IP issues SMEs come up against and how to navigate them. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Tim. Tell us about NOG. How'd your company start? That's an interesting one. So... My business partner and I, so Hugo Davidson and I, we were we were consulting um, as a team in Melbourne, uh, designing products for various other global brands. Uh, we were approached by a, a fellow who wanted to design a, um, a bicycle helmet. Hmm. So we we set up a, a joint venture. We we tried to or we developed a, a great uh, product, uh, but it was clear that we were going to have difficulty producing that in, in Australia at a competitive price. So one thing led to another. We ended up shelving that product, but in that time frame, we created a brand. And so it literally came from, I guess, the, the term noggin. <laughs> Dropped great. a couple of letters, added a K mm. to make it interesting, and, and therein lies our new brand. So Fantastic. Fortunately, though, and again, looking at talking about IP and whatnot, it meant that it was an easy uh, name to establish from, you know, everything from trademarks to domain names and 
uh, etc. So naming wise, it was actually a, a clever move unbeknown to us. So um, through the process, we identified some other products that might sit in a, in a range. So if, if things from, I guess, so LED bike lights through to, to luggage for bicycles um, and over that. With that initial brand, we also included things like um, you know, bike gloves, um, other bits and pieces that looked like we could make a point of difference. So backpacks, saddlebags, bike lights, etc. So and we launched that uh, first range uh, Taipei bicycle show early 2003. And so that was the beginnings of NOG in a, in a commercial sense and on, on a global scale. So people can just imagine a couple of Melbourne mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra, hanging around a bar after their ride and they just come up with this idea and go global. So, some time ago, <laughs> so we weren't quite middle-aged. But young middle, young <laughs> mammals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Now, I've noticed there's one or two bicycles in China already. You know, it does have that famous bicycle culture. Is that what attracted you to China? No, the attraction to China was from a manufacturing point of view. What we'd learnt, you know, with that helmet exercise is that it was going to be difficult to produce products in Australia moving forward because the trend was, um, you know, with prices going up, not down. So we'd already spent some time in China, in Asia actually, with our consulting projects, uh, doing tooling and, and setting up for manufacture for other brands that we were designing products for. So we had an experience and, a, and an awareness that um, manufacturing was appearing to go offshore. So uh, we started talking to contract manufacturers. These are people that would, or, or companies that would buy components uh, from other sources, be it injection mouldings, metal pressings, PCBAs, uh, batteries, and, and, and so forth, and do final assembly of finished goods. So we had experience working with uh, those sort of supply chains. Um, and so it, it made sense for us to have a look at China from day one. So we did. Um, and so that's the interest in China is really from a supply chain manufacturing point of view. And interestingly, even back then, um, there was already an export market from China, certainly into sports and outdoors and, and, and cycling accessories market. So there were already uh, other brands that were making product in China and shipping from China uh, around the globe. Now, you're a engineer designer. Your design's very important to you. Do you see continuous design and redesign as the way to beat IP theft, you know, being copied? Yeah, absolutely. While the Chinese have become very good at copying product, I guess what keeps us ahead of the, the game is, you know, coming up with new ideas and innovation um, as a, a sustainable competitive edge. Have you ever made some mistakes with IP or anything that you can share that other people might have made? Not not too confessional, but you know. There's been a lot of stories, a lot of things that have happened over time. And uh, interestingly, with our focus on IP and, and that being our competitive edge, we did make a bit of a boo-boo um, a few years back where we had inadvertently copied, a, a, I guess, a, a technique with a, a button-push mechanism that we used in one of our products. And so IP, you know, it drills down into that sort of level of, of know-how. Um, and this was a switch mechanism that we 
thought, oh, this looks like a good idea, but... Um, the, oh, so you were the one copying. You weren't copying. Yeah, the, oh, yes, well, was, well, I didn't young, expect that. Okay. One of the young team members had <laughs> um, had uh, seen this mechanism in another product and, and adopted it in his design. And so through the process of design review, we hadn't picked up on that. And so it was an innocent mistake and, and an absolute you know, goes down as a, as a learning, as a, as a lesson. Um, but uh, yes, in the negative, um, we we have a, a case there of of copying and not being the the copied. But uh, that's very easily eclipsed by all of the the copying that goes on um, in the market that certainly centres around Nog products. And you just keep ahead of the curve by redesigning and. Coming up, with we new do. Iteration. Yeah, we, we've we've enjoyed over um, many years now being one of the market leaders uh, in IP and and also um, through design, language, um, messaging, brand, strong branding through through images and uh, messages and and design language in our products. So, what tips would you give on IP to other? Australian companies heading over to China? Number one tip is if you're producing product in China is to register any IP that you foresee being valid uh, to your product um, or idea is register that IP in China from the outset. That gives you the opportunity then to shut down would-be Chinese factory copiers. And you can do that? Yes, they have a, a pretty solid system and IP infrastructure in China now and that's one of our strategies now is to immediately register our IP, our patents and uh, design registrations in China. Can you get advice or help from the Australian government on IP? We work with a, uh, a patent attorney office in Melbourne and they have reach through to the major markets that we also play in. They don't necessarily have offices in other countries, but they have a connection through to other IP partner, IP firms. So we work through the local office and seek our advice with those guys. And, and we've built up a relationship over time and I have an understanding these days about what our focus is and, and the direction that we typically take with design and protecting our design. So it makes for a faster sort of turnaround IP generating exercises, if that makes sense. And do you think in over 17 years of NOG been in China. You think things are getting better on the IP front? Uh, it's hard to say, you know, because if, you know, we often ask the question, because we, we spend a lot of money on IP, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars each year um, on registering our products uh, from a design point of view and a, a patent point of view and trademarks and domain names. But yeah, it, it's, it's hard to say. We, we sometimes ask the question, well, if we weren't doing this, you know, and we were spending the money on other things, um, where would we be? Uh, and I, it's this sort of balance between, I think, between being seen to be protecting your IP uh, and being strong on that, which is, uh, I guess, uh, the deterrent 
factor. And then there's the reality of, you know, the tangible um, events where you've literally got someone there that's copying your product. You've only just launched it yourself and, uh, and, and we need to be in a position to shut them down. And so at, at that point, um, you know, you need to have something solid. And in China, that is a, a piece of paper or, or a document that says you are the registered owner and they sit up and listen to that and, and, and respond accordingly. So we've had uh, many cases where we've, we've been in a position where we've had to do that. Often we see these guys pop up at trade shows uh, and you know, walking past a booth and you spot your own product there that you only launched six months earlier, aside from the fact that it's disheartening, but it's good to be able to walk into that booth immediately and make attempts to shut them down. And and they listen. Perfect. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Well, we've heard from the business. Now let's speak with the expert. David Bennett from IP Australia is here with me now. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Now, you're the IP counsellor in the Australian Embassy in Beijing. Did the Australian government choose China for a particular reason to put the IP counsellor there? We've got such enormous trade with China and with the conclusion of the free trade agreement and that taking effect in 2015, it was only growing. At the same time, Australians were often facing IP issues in China, but IP issues that really the the majority of them could have actually been prevented if they had understood early in the piece what they needed to do to protect themselves in the market. So that was why this position, our IP counsellor to China position, was created from 2016 to help Australians going into the market to prevent issues from arising. But you're not you know, you're not in Tokyo or Seoul. I mean, there was a reason why they chose China. Is it, is it very different than other markets in Asia? First of all, China is different because of the scale. China is just order of magnitude bigger than all these other markets. And with a growing middle class of some 400 million odd people right now, it's only getting more and more important as a consumer market. The second main thing is that China is still the manufacturing center of the world. So much of the world's goods are made in China that protecting IP in China is just absolutely critical for a business. China's integrated into so many global supply chains. Protecting IP in China should be a priority for everyone. Now, tell me, what is intellectual property? Intellectual property is creations of the mind that are then realised in the real world in some way. So it might be an invention, a brand, a design, or a creative work like a novel or a work of art. IP is protected through several different forms of IP rights. Copyright protection applies automatically to creative works, but it's really the exception. For the other IP rights, if if you've developed a new brand, an invention, or a new design, you have to actually take active steps if you want to protect these through applying to register IP rights. A trademark is the sign that distinguishes your goods and services from those of others. It's usually a name or a logo. Trademarks are used to protect brands in this way. Patents are used to protect inventions, and that's both products and processes. And designs, sometimes called design patents, are used to protect the visual appearance of a product. IP is a form of property, so you can own it, sell it, or license it. In the modern world, IP can be an enormous part of the value of the business. If you look at 
of company like Apple, the world's most valuable company, enormous proportion of the value of their company is in their IP, their brands and their inventions and their designs. You mentioned Apple and how they have to protect their IP. I mean, they, the smartphone, for instance, how would you protect that? You just protect the product? So something like a smartphone is protected by multiple different IP rights. You would have patents protecting the inventions, so the workings of the product. You would have trademarks protecting the brand, the company name, the logos, that is. You would have designs protecting the visual appearance of the product. Then you'd also have the software protected by copyright. Now, what happens in, a, in, in Australia? You know, what's the worst thing that could happen in Australia if you don't register your, your brand name or your trademark? So if you've created IP, that's great, but you then have to take these steps to protect it. If you don't protect your IP through registering IP rights, what you're doing is essentially giving away what you've done to the entire world. So let's say, Tim, that you have invented a new mousetrap. It's genius. You've invented the better mousetrap. So everyone in the world is going to want this. If you start producing this product and just put it on the market without having applied for a patent, then you don't have a legal right to stop anyone else from just simply copying your invention once it's out there. Uh, it doesn't matter that you invented it. If you don't secure a patent, then you don't have a legal right to stop others from making it themselves. Patents and also designs to protect the visual appearance of products, these have to be filed before you make a public disclosure of the product. You can't, you can't go back and do it later. This means that you have to decide up front, do you want to apply for a patent or design? If you come back a few years later and say, oh, actually, my mousetrap has been a great success, I'd like a patent now, please, it's too late at that point. You have to file before you go public. Now, let's say with your mousetrap, you come up with a brilliant brand name um, for, the, for your product. If you register a trademark, that's going to allow you to better protect your brand name against people using something identical or confusingly similar. You have better protection with a trademark than if you don't. Now, what happens, you know, I set up three blind mice mousetraps or whatever you want to call it, and I want to go into China. Now, you're saying that if I don't register it in China, then the fact I've registered it in Australia is sort of meaningless. Is that right, if you go to China? That's absolutely right. So IP rights are territorial. What that means is that your Australian trademark or patent will protect you in Australia and Australia only. If you want protection in other territories, like China, like the USA, Japan, any other, any other market, you have to register separately in those countries. There's no such thing as an international patent or an international trademark. We do have international systems the Patent Cooperation Treaty and the Madrid System for Trademarks that makes it easier to file in countries around the world, but it still comes down to registering separately in territories you want to get protection in. So if you register your patent or trademark in Australia but nowhere else, you have no right to stop someone else using your brand or performing your invention in other countries. So let's say that you've patented your mousetrap here in Australia but nowhere else. There's nothing to stop then a Chinese manufacturer producing 100,000 copies of it in China. By doing that, they're not breaking any law if you don't have a patent protecting you in China. 
So one of the most important things that companies can do is registering IP rights in any territory you're interested in. It means, it means the USA, it means China, it means Japan, Korea, whichever market you've got an interest in going into. How do you do this? Go and see an Australian trademarks attorney or an Australian patents attorney. They can work with firms in overseas markets to secure your registrations in those countries. Don't try and do it yourself. It normally has a bad outcome. It does cost money and businesses are always short on money, especially small businesses, but I like to use the analogy of uh, insurance. You wouldn't go traveling overseas, especially not to America, without travel insurance. So you certainly shouldn't be operating in an overseas market without registering IP there first. If you do want to export to China, but you think you can't afford to shell out the $1,000 or so it would take to get a trademark registration, then maybe you're not yet ready for China. It's, it's a form of insurance. You get it up front to protect yourself against all that risk further down the line. Is it culturally different the way they treat IP in China compared to the US or Europe or Australia? You know, is, it, is imitation considered a legitimate part of business historically in China where it might be frowned upon in the West? China's patent law only came in in 1985 and the trademarks law back in 1983 or 1984. So that's, that's not very long at all. China's changed a lot in the past 10, 20 years. So whereas imitation and copying was probably more prevalent in the past, China's moving up in the world. Chinese companies are innovating more and more and getting more domestically produced uh, intellectual property. In the past, it might have been foreign companies taking action against Chinese companies. These days, 95% of the uh, litigation going on is Chinese company versus Chinese company. And you have Chinese companies now amongst the largest patent filers in the world. So as China moves in this direction, naturally the IP system becomes stronger. Copying becomes uh, less, less of an issue as time goes on. And as IP counsellor in Beijing, what sort of advice do you give people? And what types of things do people come to you with? What sorts of problems do they have? First of all, I tell people to register their IP rights in China. That's the absolute most important thing. Once they have their IP rights registered, they have the tools they need to fight infringers, to fight counterfeits or copycats or other forms of infringement. Another common issue I see is around legal agreements for China. So you wouldn't get a Chinese lawyer to draft a contract for Australia. Similarly, you shouldn't have an Australian lawyer drafting a contract for China unless they really understand the Chinese legal system. It's so important to get local legal advice for contracts and other legal agreements. We often see issues where uh, a contract has been drafted such that it ultimately can't be enforced in China. So China doesn't enforce foreign court judgments. So if an Australian company contracting with a Chinese partner and uses a contract that says dispute resolution will be in, for example, the Supreme Court of New South Wales, that's not going to be enforceable before a Chinese court. So people ask me, what's the answer? Is it arbitration in Hong Kong or Singapore or something? I don't try and answer that. I'm not a China lawyer, but it's really important to discuss that with a China qualified lawyer and really pay attention to dispute resolution in your contracts. So this means for all contracts, non-disclosure agreements, uh, import and distribution, sales agreements, technology licensing, all of these. Very important to pay attention to your contracts and get local legal advice. 
Now, some more cavalier businesses say, well, the, the way to beat IP theft is just to be very innovative and keep ahead of the competition constantly. Would you think that's a wise course of action if you're going into China as a foreign enterprise? I've heard businesses say this. We don't need to register patents or other IP. We will just innovate, keep ahead of them. And I think those days are gone. If you go to Shenzhen, you can have a product, a quite technical, sophisticated product, reverse engineered in as little as 24 hours. It's amazing, the tech ecosystem down there. You often see this on crowdsourcing uh, campaigns where a company has put its product up there, made it very public, you know, put it out there, anyone can see it. It's, it's quite often a factory down in Guangdong has produced it and got it to market before this crowdsource, uh, before this campaign has even got a product. Um, so the days of being able to stay ahead of people by innovating fast, I think, are gone, which means it's only ever more important to register IP rights and use that as your protection. And just finally, what does IP Australia do to help exporters going to China or anywhere around the world? So our focus is on educating uh, educating Australians about the IP system, how they can protect their rights and how they can do that in overseas markets. We have information on our website, ipaustralia.gov.au, other resources on there. We do other events, um, webinars and things like that, and you can stay tuned into what we're doing by signing up to our What's New mailing list through our website. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.